Section 13 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. The Beginnings of Polyphony. In the preceding chapter, we have tried to trace the perfecting of a form of melody called plain song. We have seen how the mass of the Catholic Church was set to solo music. Apart from the highly expressive quality which the music inevitably acquired, because of the reality and life of the new emotional religion, the plain song of the mass did not differ from the artistic music of the Greeks and the Romans. That is to say, it brought forward no new means of effect or of expression. We may say it was the adaptation of old and tried methods to new ends. We can hardly suppose that the technique of composition had been advanced by the early Christian composers beyond the point to which the Greeks had brought it, nor that the art of music had been expanded during the first centuries of the Christian era to greater proportions than the Greeks had developed it. The theorists of the first nine centuries made blunders in trying to systematize Christian song according to the remnants of Greek theory which had been preserved. Yet the Greek scales were still in use, though misnamed by the theorists, and composers for the church still conformed to them. But about the beginning of the ninth century, a new element appeared in music for the church, which the Greeks had left practically untouched and which was probably the contribution of the barbarian peoples of northern and western Europe, either the Germans or the Celts, namely part-singing. To the single plain-song melodies of the ritual, composers added another accompanying melody or part. The resultant progression of concords and discords was incipient harmony, the practice of so weaving two and later three and four melodies together was the beginning of the science or art of polyphony. Polyphony was practically foreign to the music of the Greeks. They had observed, it is true, that a chorus of men and boys produced a different quality of sound from that of a chorus made up of all men or all boys, and they had analysed the difference and found the cause of it to be that boys' voices were an octave higher than men's, and that boys and men singing together did not sing the same notes. This effect, which they also imitated with voices and certain instruments, they called antiphony, and they considered it more pleasing than the effect of voices or instruments in the same pitch which they called homophony. The practice of making music in octaves was called magadizing, from the name of a large harp-like instrument, the magadis, upon which it was possible. But magadizing cannot be considered the forerunner of polyphony for though melodies an octave apart may be considered not strictly the same, still they pursue the same course, and are in no way independent of each other, and the effect of a melody sung in octaves differs from the effect of one sung in unison only in quality, not at all in kind. The allegiance of theorists to Greek culture all through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance has tended to conceal the actual origin of polyphony. But as early as 1767, J. J. Rousseau wrote in his Dictionnaire de Musique, It is hard not to suspect that all our harmony is an invention of the Goths or the Barbarians. And later, 
it was reserved to the people of the north to make this great discovery and to bequeath it as the foundation of all the rules of the art of music the kernel from which the complicated science of polyphony sprang is simple to understand one voice sang a melody another voice or an instrument starting with it wove a counter melody about it elaborated by the flourishes and melismas which are still dear to the people of the orient some such sort of primitive improvisation seems to have been practised by the people of northern europe and to have been taken over by the church singers the later art of des chants sur la livre or improvised descant was essentially no different and seems to have been of very ancient origin the early theorists naturally took it upon themselves to regulate and systematize the popular practice and thereupon polyphony first comes to our notice through their works in a very stiff and ugly form of music called organum which in its strictest form is hardly more to be considered polyphony than the magadizing of the greeks the works of many of the ninth century theorists such as aurelian of Réaumé and remy of Auxerre, suggest that some form of part singing was practised in their day though they leave us in confusion owing to the ambiguity of their language the famous scholar scotus eregena eight hundred eighty mentions organum but in a passage that is difficult and obscure regino abbot of prum in eight hundred ninety two is the first to define consonance and dissonance in such a way as to leave no doubt that he considers them from the point of view of polyphony that is to say as sounds that are the result of two different notes sung simultaneously in the works of hochbald of saint amand in flanders quite at the end of the century if not well into the tenth hochbald died in nine thirty or nine thirty two over ninety years of age there is at last a definite and clear description of organum the word organum is an adaptation of the name of the instrument on which the art could be imitated or perhaps from which it partly originated the organ just as the greeks coined a word from magadis of hochbald's life little is known save that he was born about eight hundred and forty that he was a monk a poet and a musician a disciple of saint remy of auxerre and a friend of saint odo of cluny up to within recent years several important works on music were attributed to him of which only one seems now to be actually his the tract de harmonica institutione of which several copies are in existence this and the musica enchiriadis of his friend saint odo are responsible for the widespread belief that polyphony actually sprang from a hideous progression of empty fourths and fifths both theorists in their efforts to confine the current form of extemporized descant in the strict bounds of theory reduced it thus to a given melody taken from the plain song of the church the descanter or organizer added another at the interval of a fifth or fourth below which followed the first melody or cantus firmus note by note in strictly parallel movement the fourth seems to have been regarded as the pleasanter of the intervals though as we shall see it led composers into difficulties to overcome which Hochbald himself proposed a relaxation of the stiff parallel movement between the parts. In the strict organum or diaphony, the movement was thus. Oh. 
either or both of the parts might be doubled at the octave, in which case the diaphony was called composite. Just why the intervals of the fifth and fourth should have been chosen for this parallel music, which is excruciating to our modern ears, is not positively known. The simple obvious answer to the riddle is that Hookbald and his contemporaries based their theories on the theories of the Greeks, who regarded the fifth and fourth as consonances nearest the perfect consonants of the octave and unison. But in that case we have to ask ourselves why Hookbald and his followers regarded the diaphony of the fourth as pleasanter than that of the fifth, which they nonetheless acknowledge was more nearly perfect. Dr. Hugo Riemann has suggested a solution to this difficulty, which is in substance that organum was an attempt to assimilate elements of an ancient art of singing practised by the Welsh and other Celtic singers. The Welsh scale is a pentatonic scale, that is, a scale of five steps in which half steps are skipped. In terms of the keyboard, it can be represented by a scale starting upon E-flat and proceeding to the E-flat above or below only by way of the black keys between or by a similar progression between any other two black keys an octave apart. In such a scale, parallel fourths are impossible, as indeed they are in the Greek scales of eight notes upon which the church music was based. But whereas the progression of the fourths in the Greek scales is broken by the imperfect and very unpleasant interval of the tritone, in the pentatonic scale it is interrupted by the pleasing major third. Such a progression of fourths and thirds seems to spring almost naturally from the pentatonic scales, and was likely very much practised by the ancient Welsh singers. A comparison of two examples will make the difference obvious. Pentatonic Octatonic The presence in the octatonic scale of the disagreeable tritone forced even Hookbald and Odo to make some provision for avoiding it. This consisted in limiting the movement of the organising voice. It was not allowed to descend below a certain point in the scale. In those cases, therefore, in which the cantus firmus began in such a way that the organising voice could not accompany it at the start without sinking below its prescribed limit, the organising voice must start with the same note as the cantus firmus and hold that note until the cantus firmus had risen so that it was possible for the organising voice to follow it at the interval of a fourth. In the same way, the parts were forced to close at the unison if the movement of the cantus firmus did not permit the organising voice to follow it at the interval of a fourth without going below its limit. The following example will make this clear. In this case, it will be noted that the movement of the parts is no longer continuously parallel, but that there are passages in which it is oblique. Indeed, it is hardly conceivable that strict parallel movement was ever adhered to in anything but theory. 
it is interesting to observe how even in theory it had to give way and how by the presence of the tritone in the scale the theorists were practically forced into a genuine polyphonic style the strict style as we have already remarked was hardly more polyphonic than the magadizing of the greeks for though the voice parts are actually different still each is closely bound to the other and has no independent movement of its own but in the freer style there is a difference if not an independence of movement in connection with this example it is also well to note that through the oblique movement the parts are made to sound other intervals than the fourth or fifth or unison which with the octave were regarded for centuries as the only consonances at the second note of the example they are singing the harsh interval of a second immediately after they sing a major third by the earliest theorists these dissonances were disregarded or accepted as necessary evils the unavoidable results of the restrictions under which the organizing voice was laid but if the free diaphony was practiced at all it was to lead musicians inevitably to a recognition of these intervals and of the effect of contrasting one kind with another in the works of hookwald and odo and their contemporaries however the ideal is theoretically the parallel progression of the only consonances they would admit the fourth fifth and octave oblique movement was first of all a way to escape the tritone and the unnamed dissonances were haphazard thus we find only the mere germ of the science of polyphony the dry stiffness of the music and the inadequacy of the cumbersome rules must lead one to believe that learned men true to their time were doing what they could to define a popular free practice within the limits of theory the sudden untraceable advent of a new free style some hundred years or more later goes to prove that the free descant of a genuinely musical people was never actually suppressed or discontinued by the influence of the theorists however before considering the new diaphony we have still to trace the further progress of the organum of hookbald and odo the next theorist of importance was guido of arezzo to guido have been attributed at various times most of the important inventions and reforms of early polyphonic music among them descant organum and diaphony the hexachordal system the staff for notation and even the spinet but the wealth of tradition which clothed him so gloriously has as in the case of many others been gradually stripped from him till we find him disclosed as a brilliantly learned monk and a famous teacher author of but few of the works which possibly his teaching inspired he has recently been identified with a french monk of the benedictine monastery of saint maur de fosse he was born at or near arezzo about nine hundred and ninety and in due time became a benedictine monk he must have had remarkable talent for music for about ten twenty two pope benedict the eighth hearing that he had invented a new method for teaching singing invited him to rome to question him about it he visited rome again a few years later on the express invitation of pope john the nineteenth and this time brought with him a copy of the antiphonarium written according to his own method of notation the story goes that the pope was so impressed by the new method that he refused to allow guido to leave the audience chamber until he had himself learned to sing from it after this he tried to persuade guido to remain in rome but guido on the plea of ill health left rome promising to return the following year 
However, he accepted an invitation from the abbot of a monastery near Ferrara to go there and teach singing to the monks and choir boys. And he stayed there several years, during which he wrote one of the most important of his works, the Micrologus, dedicated to the bishop of Arezzo. Later he became abbot of the monastery of Santa Croce, near Arezzo, and he died there about the year 1050. During the time of his second visit to Rome, he wrote the famous letter to Michael, a monk at Pomposa, which has led historians to believe that he was actually the inventor of a new division of the scales into groups of six notes called hexachorda and a new system of teaching based on this division. The case of Guido is typical of the period in which he lived. Very evidently an unusually gifted teacher, as Hukbald was a hundred years before him, his influence was strong over the communities with which he came into contact and spread abroad after his death, so that many innovations which were probably the results of slow growth were attributed to his inventiveness. The Micrologus contains many rules for the construction of organum below a cantus firmus, which are not very much advanced beyond those of Hukbald and Odo. The old strict diaphony is still held by him in respect, though the free is much preferred. To those intervals which result from the free treatment of the organising voice, however, he gives names, and he is conscious of their effect, so that, where Hukbald and Odo confine themselves to giving rules for the movement of the organising voice in such a way as to avoid the harsh tritone, even at the cost of other dissonances, Guido gives rules to direct singers in the use of these dissonances for themselves, which, as we have seen in the earlier treatises, were considered accidental. This marks a real advance, but there is in Guido's works the same attempt merely to make rules, to harness music to logical theory that we found in Hukbald's and Odo's, and it is again hard to believe that his method of organising was in common practice, or that it represents the style of church singing of his day. From the accounts of the early Christians, from the elaborate ornamentation of the plain song in medieval manuscripts in which it is first found written down, and from later accounts of the descanters, we are influenced to believe that music was sung in the church with a warmth of feeling, sometimes exalted, sometimes hysterical, even to the point of stamping with the feet and gesticulating, from which the standardised bald ornamentation of Guido is far removed. Furthermore, the next important treatises after Guido's, one by Johannes Cotto, and an anonymous one called Ad Organum Faciendum, deal with the subject of organum in a wholly new way, and show an advance which can hardly be explained unless we admit that a freer kind of organum was much in use in Guido's day than that which he describes and for which he makes his rules. But before proceeding with the development of the early polyphony after the time of Guido, we have to consider two inventions in music which have been for centuries placed to his credit. In the first place, he is supposed to have divided the scale, which, it will be remembered, had always been considered as consisting of groups of four notes called tetrachords, placed one above the other, into overlapping groups of six notes called hexachords. The first began on G, the second on C, the third on F, and the others were reduplications of these at the octave. The superiority of this system over the system of tetrachords, inherited from the Greeks, was that in each hexachord the half-tone occupies the same position, 
that is, between the third and fourth steps. Footnote. Strict imitation would be extremely difficult in the tetrachordal system. A subject given in one tetrachord could not be imitated exactly in another, because the tetrachords varied from each other by the position of the half-step within them. Compare, for instance, the modern major and minor modes. The answer given in minor to a subject announced in major is not a strict imitation. If, on the other hand, the answer to a subject in a certain hexachord was given in another hexachord, it would necessarily be a strict imitation, since in all hexachords the half-step came between the third and fourth tones, between mi and fa. End of footnote. It is not certain whether Guido was the first so to divide the scale, but he evidently did much to perfect the system. There has long been a tradition that he was the first to give those names to the notes of the hexachord which are in use even at the present day. Having noticed that the successive lines of a hymn to St. John the Baptist began on successive notes of the scale, the first on G, the second on A, the third on B, etc., up to the sixth note, namely E, he is supposed to have associated the first syllable of each line with the note to which it was sung. The hymn reads as follows. Ut quiant laxis, re sonari fibris, mira gestorum, famuli tuorum, solve polluti, labi reatum, Sancte Ioannis. Hence G was called ut, a, re, b, mi, si, fa, di, sol, and e, la. These are the notes of the first hexachord, and these names are given to the notes of every hexachord. The half-step, therefore, was always mi, fa. Since the hexachords overlapped, several tones acquired two or even three names. For instance, the second hexachord began on C, which was also the fourth note of the first hexachord. And in the complete system, this C was called C fa ut. The fourth hexachord began on G an octave above the first. This G was not only the lowest note of the fourth hexachord, but the second of the third, and the fourth of the second. Therefore, its complete name was G sol re ut. The lowest G, which Guido is said to have added to the perfect system, was called gamma. It was always gamma ut, from which our word gamut derives. The process of giving each note its proper series of names was called solemnization. The system seems to us clumsy and inadequate. We cannot but ask ourselves why Guido did not choose the natural limit of the octave for his groups instead of the sixth. However, it was a great improvement over the yet clumsier system of the tetrachords, and was of a great service to musicians down to comparatively recent times. One may find no end of examples of its use in the works of the great polyphonic writers. As a help to students in learning it, the systems of the Guidonian hand was invented, whereby the various tones and syllables of the hexachords were assigned to the joints of the hand, and could be counted off on the hand much as children are taught in kindergarten to count on their fingers. That Guido himself invented this elementary system is doubtful, though his name has become associated with it. Guido must also be credited with valuable improvements in the art of notation. 
In his day, two systems were in use. One employed the letters of the alphabet, capitals for the lowest octave, small letters for the next, and double letters for the highest. This was exact, though difficult and clumsy. The other employed neumes, superimposed over the words of the text to be sung, at distances varying according to the pitch of the sound. This, though essentially graphic, was inaccurate. Composers were already accustomed to draw two lines over the text, each of which stood for a definite pitch, one for F, coloured red, and one for C, a fifth above, coloured yellow. But the pitch of notes between or below or above these lines was, of course, still only indefinitely indicated by the distance of the neumes from them. Guido therefore added another line between these two, representing A, and one above, representing E, both coloured black. Thus the four-line staff was perfected. It has remained the orthodox star for plain song down to the present day. This improvement of notation, in addition to the hexachordal system and the invention of solemnization, have all had a lasting influence upon music. And through his close connection with them, Guido of Arezzo stands out as one of the most brilliant figures in the early history of music. Hardly a trace has survived of the development of music during the fifty years after the death of Guido, about 1050. The next works which cast light upon music were written about 1100. One is the Musica of Johannes Cotto, the other the anonymous Ad Organum Faciendum mentioned above. In both works a wholly new style of organum makes its appearance. In the first place the organising voice now sings normally above the cantus firmus, though the whole style is so relatively free that the parts frequently cross each other, sometimes coming to end with the organising voice below. In the second place, contrary movement in the voice parts is preferred to parallel or oblique movement, that is, if the melody ascends, the accompanying voice, if possible, descends, and vice versa. Thus the two melodies have each an individual free movement, and the science of polyphony is really underway. Moreover, they proceed now through a series of consonances. There are no haphazard dissonances as in the earlier free organum of both Hookbald and Guido. The organising voice is no longer directed only in such a way as is easiest to avoid the hated tritone, but is planned to sing always in consonance with the cantus firmus. The following example illustrates the movement of the parts in this new system. Cotto is rather indifferent and, of course, dry about the whole subject of organum. It occupied but a chapter in his rather long treatise, but the anonymous is full of enthusiasm and loud in his praises of this method of part singing and bold in his declaration of its superiority over the unaccompanied plain song. Such enthusiasm smacks a little of the layman and is but another indication of the real origin of organum in the improvised descant of the people, quite out of the despotism of theory. The anonymous gives a great many rules for the conduct of the organising or improvising voice. He has divided the system into two modes, 
determined by the interval at which the voices start out. For instance, rules of the first mode state how the organizing voice must proceed when it starts in unison with the cantus firmus, or at the octave. If it starts at the fourth or fifth, it is controlled by the rules of the second mode. There are three other modes which are determined by the various progressions of the parts in the middle of the piece. The division into modes and the rules are of little importance, for it is obvious that only the first few notes of a piece are definitely influenced by the position at which the parts start, and that after this influence ceases to make itself felt, the modes dissolve into each other. Thus, though the enthusiasm of the anonymous points to the popularity of the current practice of organising, whatever it may have been, his rules are but another example of the inability of theory to cope with it. Still this theoretical composition continued to claim the respect of teachers and composers late into the second half of the 12th century. A treatise by Guy, abbot of Chaly, about this time, is concerned with essentially the same problems and presents no really new point of view. He is practically the last of the theorizing organizers. Organum gave way to a new kind of music. In the course of over 200 years, it had run perfectly within the narrow limits to which it had been inevitably confined, and the science of it was briefly this. To devise over any given melody a counter-melody, which accompanied it note by note, moving as far as possible in contrary motion, sinking to meet the melody when it rose, rising away from it when it fell, and with few exceptions, in strictest concord of octaves, fifths, fourths, and unison. Rules had been formulated to cover practically all combinations which could occur in the narrow scheme. The restricted, cramped art then crumbled into dust and disappeared. Again and again this process is repeated in the history of music. The essence of music, and indeed of any art, cannot be caught by rules and theories. The stricter the rules, the more surely will music rebel and seek expression in new and natural forms. We cannot believe that music in the Middle Ages was not a means of expression, that it was not warm with life, and therefore we cannot believe that this dry organum of Huckwald and Odo, of Guido of Arezzo, of Guy of Chaly, which was stillborn of scholastic theory, is representative of the actual practice of music, either in the church or among the people. On the other hand, these excellent old monks were pioneers in the science of polyphonic writing, Inadequate and confusing as their rules and theories may be, they are nonetheless the first rules and theories in the field, the first attempts to give to polyphony the dignity and regularity of art. Meanwhile, long before Guy of Chaly had written what may be taken as the final word on organum, the new art which was destined to supplant it was developing both in England and in France. Two little pieces, one Ut Tuo Propitiatus, the other, Mira Rege, Mira Modo, have survived from the first part of the 12th century. Both are written in a freely moving style in which the use of concords and discords appears quite unrestricted. Moreover, the second of them is distinctly metrical and in lively rhythm. It is noted with neumes on a staff, and the rhythm is evident only through the words for the neumes gave no indication of the length or shortness of the notes which they represented, but only their pitch. 
Now in both these little pieces, there are places where the organising voice sings more than one note to a note of the cantus firmus, or vice versa. So long as composers set only metrical texts to music, the rhythm of the verse easily determined the rhythm in which the shorter notes were to be sung over the longer. But the text of the mass was in unmetrical prose, and if composers, in setting this to music in more than one part, wished one part to sing several notes to the other's one, they had no means of indicating the rhythm or measure in which these notes were to be sung. Hence it became necessary for them to invent a standard metrical measure and a system of notation whereby it could be indicated. Their efforts in this direction inaugurated the second period in the history of polyphonic music, which is known as the period of measured music and which extends roughly from the first half of the 12th century to the first quarter of the 14th, approximately 1150 to 1325. End of section 13